Welcome everyone to this uh, hybrid event. There are some of us here in the room at the uh, MEC. There are others joining us online. Everyone is, of course, equally welcome. Um, my name is Greg Shapland. I'm a visiting fellow here at the MEC. I was formerly with Chatham House and before that, for many, many years, with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office now the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. Um, our event today will launch three papers, which those in the room have in front of them. Um, they've been authored by Courtney Freer, who's joining us online, and by uh, Spiros Sophos, who's next to me. Um, they're part of the Global Transition Series, a research output from PeaceRep. Uh, funded by UK aid from the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO. Um, the, the three papers are Peace Building in Turbulent Times, Turkey in, in MENA and Africa, that's, uh, authored by Spiros, and two papers authored by Courtney, uh, one, Gatter in the UAE in Peacemaking and Peace Building, and the other, MENA regional organizations in peacemaking and peace building, League of Arab States, GCC, and Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Um, now, the speakers will speak for a combined total of around 40 to 45 minutes. The rest of the time uh, we have for questions and answers. And if anyone on Zoom wants to answer, ask a question, please type it into the question and answer box on your screen. And the, we will address these questions just as we do ones from people in the room. Now, just some uh, brief uh, information about our speakers. Um, and if you want more, I'm going to just give a very brief outline of their many uh, uh, qualities and achievements. Um, Courtney Freer uh, is Provost's postdoctoral fellow at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and visiting fellow like me at the LSE Middle East Center. Um, from 2015 to 2020, Courtney was a research officer for the Kuwait program at the LSE Middle East Center. Her work focuses on the domestic politics of the Gulf states, particularly the roles played by Islamism and tribalism. Her book, Rentier Islamism, The Influence of the Muslim Brotherhood in Gulf Monarchies, uh, was published in 2018 and examines the socio-political role played by Muslim Brotherhood groups in Kuwait, Qatar, and the UAE. Uh, Spiros Sophos is a research officer on the LSE Kuwait program, uh, project Ecologies of Belonging and Exclusion, an Intersectional Analysis of Urban Citizenship in Kuwait City. Spiros's uh, research explores the intersection of societal insecurity, identity, and collective action. And to date, it has focused on Turkish politics and society, nationalism and populism in Europe and the Middle East, urban citizenship in the Middle East, European Muslim identities and politics, and the theory of populism. His latest book, Turkish Politics and the People, Mass Mobilization and Populism, explores the emergence 
of populism in contemporary Turkey and its genealogy as a tradition of action and discourse. Uh, as I said, more on the MEC website if you uh, want it. Uh, I'm going to uh, ask Courtney to speak first, if you wouldn't mind, and I will. You have two papers to um, address, Courtney. So uh, I will leave it to you to move on from one to the other. Uh, just uh, you know when you're ready. But, but please go ahead. Great, thank you so much, and thanks for having me. I'm sorry I'm not there in person. I'm getting very nostalgic uh, seeing room 904 and thinking about all of the, the conversations we had there in the past. So I'm sorry not to be there in person, but uh, thanks for having me um, over Zoom. Um, so as was mentioned, I wrote two papers. I'm going to start with the more specific one about Qatar and the Emirates, and then I'll move on to the general um, regional piece. Um, and I'll try not to take up too much time. Um, so starting with uh, Qatar and the UAE, I found five main shared characteristics of peacemaking as done by these small but wealthy states. First is obviously they're small. So um, unlike superpowers, uh, they're not um, really, they're not, um, they're not obliged essentially to become involved in regional peacemaking or, or peace building. And so as a result, they can be, can be and tend to be quite selective in terms of where they get involved uh, on the international scene. And so I think it's very instructive to look at which countries and regions these states have chosen to assert themselves as peacemaking actors. So that's the first point is that they're, they're not superpowers. They're also not you know, traditional regional powers. And in this sense, this gives them a, a, an advantage because they come to the stage without uh, the same kind of baggage, political or otherwise, that, that other older, more traditional regional superpowers like say Egypt or Saudi Arabia may have. Um, a second characteristic, also kind of an obvious one, is that these are both very wealthy states. Um, they benefit from immense hydrocarbon wealth, uh, and this undoubtedly aids their ambitious goals abroad. Um, at, at times, both Qatar and the UAE have been accused of engaging in essentially checkbook, check, checkbook diplomacy or business diplomacy. So in essence, combining diplomacy with massive infusions of investment in order to se secure agreements among disputants or equally importantly, among potential spoilers. And so this wealth uh, tends to set these states apart from other regions from other actors in that they can and often have provided carrots for certain uh, conflict actors to become involved in negotiations. And there, are, I'll talk a little bit about the ways in which these carrots can be helpful. One, one downfall is that sometimes these are somewhat short-termist uh, policies that are put in place. I mean, there's only so much time that long-term investments or not, there's only so much time that large scale investments can be sustained. And so sometimes they're not. And so we see it more short termism with this type of checkbook diplomacy. Another way in which their massive hydrocarbon wealth assists Qatar and the UAE in peacemaking is actually to help further the use of technology in the peacemaking and peace building space. So for instance, Qatar has partnered with the UN's Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs through the Qatar Computing Research Institute to try to finance new means of global conflict resolution. The UAE at, at a recent Security Council meeting also suggested the use of technologies like unmanned aircraft systems or unmanned air, aircraft vehicles 
for both peacekeeping and intelligence gathering. Um, and so again, we see the ways in which the, the ability to find of these states to finance these types of operations puts them in a particular position, especially when we look at other um, actors in the peacemaking and peacebuilding sphere. Uh, the third shared characteristic I found is that these efforts at peacemaking in, in Qatar and the Emirates tend to be guided by a desire to distinguish themselves abroad. So something that I call state building through foreign policy. Both Qatar and the Emirates are relatively young, small, and in many ways similar. And so as a result, we've seen them kind of competing on the global stage to put forward distinct foreign policy brands. And I think we've seen this in particular since the Arab Spring, when we saw them go in, in different directions in terms of foreign policy. And, and I can talk, happy to talk about this more in Q&A, but I think that what appeared to be an ideological distinction between these states and has been described as such in, in a lot of analysis, I think is in fact an effort at statecraft through international activism or international activities otherwise. And so again, the fact that these relatively young states are using international missions to distinguish themselves is, is a, another characteristic that we see between them. Um, fourth, I think that this trend towards the involvement of, of Qatar and the Emirates in the regional peacemaking and peacebuilding sphere is likely to accelerate. And I think this is for a few reasons. Um, one is that the traditional uh, powers of the region like um, Egypt or Saudi, have, or I guess more so Egypt than Saudi have, have kind of pulled back in terms of their, their involvement in peacemaking and peace building. I think another is has a lot to do with perceptions of Western withdrawal from the region. Um, the UK post-Brexit and then the US um, with the Biden administration's uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan at the end of last year, and it's uh, thus far failed attempts to restore the JCPOA. And so I think rather than waiting for Western powers to take the lead, which they may have done in the past, Qatar and the UAE will continue to exert their own authority, particularly regional and regionally and maybe even beyond the Middle East region um, moving forward. Uh, the fifth characteristic I found of, of peacemaking and peacebuilding done by Qatar and the Emirates is a relative lack of institutional depth. Um, this contributes to what I mentioned before about often short-termist gains at the expense of long-term thought out policy. Um, so in a lot of my conversations, the, it has become clear the extent to which personal relationships have driven um, or personal priorities have driven foreign policy decisions at different times. So what may have looked like an ideological stance may have actually reflected um, personalistic relationships or uh, with, for instance, certain groups in Syria or in Libya or, or elsewhere. Um, and so the, the, the presence of personal ties in this type of sphere is not necessarily a negative thing all the time. Um, I think you could argue that without the personality of Sheikh Hamad uh, bin Khalifa Al Thani, the, the Emir of Qatar who ruled until 2013, you wouldn't have Qatar being so um, present on the world stage. So certainly individuals can and do make a difference. And I think that especially in the initial phases of mediation, personal ties and personal enthusiasm are really important. But I think what we see is that institutional mechanisms sometimes are lacking. Um, and need to be put in place to ensure 
longer term successes and institutional follow through over time rather than than risking having certain initiatives be started by certain individuals and then not necessarily um, followed followed up on. Um, but just to, to close on this paper, I think that, you know, unlike in the early 2000s, we can't really speak about peacemaking and peace building in the Middle East today without mentioning Qatar and the UAE. And I think that's a shift that is here for the, the medium to long term. Um, I do think another shift we're potentially seeing is diversification away from involvement solely in the Middle East. Um, so the UAE, for instance, was involved in an India-Pakistan ceasefire in March of last year. Qatar also has been involved in evacuations from Afghanistan. I think they're, they're maybe trying to diversify beyond um, the Middle East, but there still does remain a question, for me at least, of the longevity of um, A, checkbook diplomacy, uh, B, statecraft through foreign policy, um, and C, this relative lack of institutionalization. Um, and that's where I'm going to stop on, on that paper, and I'm going to move to the, the broader regional picture, if that's all right. Um, so as, as was mentioned, I, in the second paper, I looked at three regional organizations in the MENA region, the League of Arab States, or the Arab League, um, the Gulf Cooperation Council, or the GCC, and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, or OIC. Um, so I, just to, to describe them each briefly for you, the Arab League was founded in 1945, initially among Egypt, Iraq, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Transjordan. Um, today it has about, it, ha it has exactly uh, 22 members. Um, notably, the Arab League's charter preserves um, national sovereignty kind of above all else. Action can only take place if there's a unanimous vote in favor of it. And given that states within the Arab League do not uh, tend to see eye to eye on every issue all the time, this unanimity vote is very difficult to get and has arguably, this structure has arguably constrained the Arab League from taking a more active role in regional peacemaking and peace building. So secondly, the GCC um, was formed much later in 1981 among uh, six states on the Arabian Peninsula, Bahrain, Kuwait, Qatar, Oman, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia. And it was formed in the backdrops of the Iranian revolution in 1979 and the ongoing Iran-Iraq war, which started in 1980. And so it really formed as there was increasing anxiety about um, regional conflict coming to the Gulf region. Despite that, the body like the Arab League has had very limited uh, success in the realm of peacemaking and peace building. Uh, the GCC's charter, similar to the Arab League's, has built in uh, provisions about uh, the need to protect sovereignty. And I would argue that the GCC's unity and efficiency is really dependent on the threat level of, to member states. So the body was founded due to a fear of external threats. So we'll see when there is a time of external threats, there'll be at least rhetoric about, if not action towards greater GCC unity. But when threats are thought to come within the body of the GCC itself, as happened uh, with the famous uh, 2017 GCC diplomatic crisis, when Qatar was isolated, it becomes clear how fragile the institution is and how much suspicion there is of, of different member states within it. Um, so then finally, the OIC was formed in 1969 in Morocco with 24 member states. And it was, um, it was formed in response to an arson attack on Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, it is today headquartered in Jeddah. 
and has long focused as as you may you know as you may surmise from its founding has long focused on protection of the Palestinian territories. Um, but over time, different member states have taken different positions vis-a-vis -vis engagement with Israel in particular. Um, today, the OIC has 57 member states from every region of the world, and it includes not only Muslim majority states, but also states with substantial Muslim minorities like Russia and India. And so when you have a, a body which includes so many states from different backgrounds, different regions, different uh, strands of Islam, it's very difficult for them to come to come to agreement on how to move forward in peacemaking and peace building. And so they, they haven't really managed to make a, as big of an impact as maybe we would have thought on the peacemaking and peace building sphere in the Middle East. So overall, um, regional organizations within MENA are fractured. And I would argue that the presence of sub-regional organizations like the GCC may further enhance divisions or competition among these states. And also the presence of both multiple regional and extra-regional venues like the UN or the OIC for conflict resolution often leads uh, states to shop for a venue in conflict resolution situations, leading to a delay sometimes in their resolution. And I think what we see as a consequence of this, this fragment, fragmentation of regional cooperation, something that Paul Arts called, he called famously called the Middle East a region without regionalism. And I think in that situation, we see bilateralism continuing to be, and probably in the, in the medium to long term, will continue to be the primary mode of peacemaking and peace building in, in the MENA region. Um, and so bilateral ties, I think, will continue to be important. Um, and this dynamic of, of bilateralism in turn produces country leaders within the region, often at the expense of less powerful or less wealthy states. Indeed, as I mentioned, what we've seen in recent years is the rise of states like Qatar and the UAE in, in peacemaking and peace building, while former regional leaders like Egypt and Syria increasingly you know, attach themselves to one of these more ascendant regional powers. Um, and also due to the lack of regional unity for reasons of geopolitical competition, as well as ideological differences on a variety of issues, such as Iran, Islamism, Israel, there's substantial space for extra regional actors like Russia and the US to enter conflicts in the Middle East. And Syria is a, a prime example uh, of this practice. And throughout the paper, I go through different case studies of you know, when these regional organizations have tried to involve themselves in the peacemaking and peace building space. And Syria you know, gives us an example in which the Arab League sent the first monitors and was really trying to find an Arab solution for um, an Arab conflict. And ultimately the, uh, the member states had differing views on the utility of the monitoring mission given the Assad regime's refusal to accede to their demands or, or to their requests for um, ceasefire. And so that ended up crumbling. And now today we see the UN involved and the international community increasingly involved um, in, in Syria. Um, and so by and large, as I mentioned before, MENA countries do remain divided in terms of geopolitical strategy, for instance, towards the US, Iran, and Israel, as well as ideology. So Sunni versus Shia, as well as positions towards Sunni Islamists like the Muslim Brotherhood, to such an extent that peacemaking and peace building unity is, is very difficult. Um, where unity has been found 
It has often been to stop conflict as it's ongoing rather than to stop it from, from emerging in the first place or to address its root causes. So again, I think we see a bit of a short-termist outlook as with Qatar and the, and the Emirates. And I think that's a consequence of concerns about protecting national sovereignty above all else. And so because national sovereignty is so important, bilateralism reigns and ample space exists for external powers to become involved in regional Middle Eastern conflicts. And we've seen this over and over um, in recent years. I also think that in, in some of the case studies I looked at, all three of these regional organizations appear more willing to get involved in ongoing conflicts. Um, and so we have seen them be able to stop conflicts in some to some uh, extent and for a limited amount of time, but there's not really a long-termist vision. And that's because it's very difficult to craft a long-termist vision when members of these organizations fundamentally either distrust each other or disagree with each other on matters of geopolitics or ideology. So just to, to close, uh, I think the MENA region is unique in three ways when it comes to regional involvement in peacemaking or peace building. Um, the first is that its regional organizations were founded on the basis of shared cultural characteristics and in some ways shared perspectives about perceived regional enemies like Iran and Israel. Um, second, MENA houses primarily authoritarian regimes which do not allow for civil society involvement in foreign policy, which is somewhat common, or really even in, in humanitarian efforts. Um, third, the region is home to several ongoing political conflicts. And so these three dynamics could have theoretically spurred greater commitment to bilateralism. And in fact, you know, you would think that this, the fact that these institutions were formed on the, on the basis of some type of shared cultural identity would lead to greater multilateralism, but we've actually seen the opposite, um, particularly as the similarities which once bound these states together have increasingly dissipated, with each state developing its own perception of where geopolitical threats lie and focusing increasingly since the Arab Spring on shoring up political legitimacy at home. And so in such an environment, international actors have a role um, but ideally, I think it would be better to see these international actors subsumed under some type of umbrella of multilateralism, but it's unclear what kind of umbrella that can be when regional organizations in MENA continue to be so fractured. Um, so I will stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Courtney. Uh, turn now to uh, Spiros, please. Mm -hmm. Share my screen. Uh, easy, yes. Um, I must admit uh, it is a daunting task to have to sketch uh, a, quite a complex landscape uh, that uh, has been developing over the last 20 years, I would argue. So what I would try to do here is I would try to sketch it uh, a, a, with a few brush strokes, essentially, leaving a lot of detail outside uh, the scope of what I'm uh, going to talk about, hopefully to um, uh, take up uh, during the Q&A uh, uh, session. So um, I will start by saying that Turkey has become a, an ambitious international and regional actor uh, over primarily the, the past couple of decades. Uh, although the ambition uh, was articulated earlier uh, and uh, in a systematic way, I would say 
uh, in the period between 1997 and 2002, the last two uh, governments before the uh, Justice and Development Party, which is the incumbent, uh, uh, took office. Um, the emergence of Turkey as a country with a, a, a regional and international ambition and aspiration, uh, it's uh, the wish to play a notable role in the region and beyond coincided with the uh, um, tenure of the Justice and Development Party. Um, uh, having said that, uh, that covers a period of 20 years, and I would uh, argue, and I think it's not uh, something new, that uh, something happened along the way. So uh, there is a point in these 20 years that uh, Turkey's engagement in uh, regional and international affairs has uh, um, changed direction and uh, changed focus. And this is what I will try to, to, to uh, sketch uh, in uh, the next few minutes. So um, uh, Turkey's engagement with, uh, um, I would call them weaker or embattled states in some ways, uh, uh, has undergone a significant, uh, a significant change. And uh, I have tried to, uh, uh, in some way, um, provide a kind of key uh, to un understanding uh, when and how this change occurs. Um, in this, uh, in this uh, table that you are, uh, you're looking at, you, I have uh, brought together a series of uh, regional and domestic events. And uh, uh, at the same time, a, a series of uh, comments on uh, Turkey's engagement in a number of particular con uh, conflicts, the one in Libya, the one in Somalia, and the one uh, in Syria. Um, clearly, a lot more work needs, needs to take place in order to uh, identify the multitude of factors that have affected Turkey's engagement in international and regional affairs. Uh, but uh, I think this would suffice for the moment. Uh, because uh, uh, if we look at the, uh, I would say, regional uh, um, arena in some ways, Turkey's uh, attempt to join the European Union, uh, which was the main, I would say, focus of uh, Turkish uh, uh, international engagement, uh, uh, especially in the first years of, the, of this century, uh, has uh, 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 seems to be frustrated that around uh, 2007-2008, uh, uh, numerous countries start uh, uh, objecting to opening new chapters in the negotiations and uh, 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 continuous uh, postponements of uh, uh, milestones uh, uh, start becoming, uh, uh, start arising in many ways. At the same time, uh, roughly the same time, I would say, uh, as, uh, and it's related to uh, Turkey's frustration, frustrate the frustration of its European uh, prospect in some ways. Uh, as the economy also is uh, taking a relative downturn, uh, we can see that uh, within the country, uh, 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 there are uh, actors that are trying to um, uh, undermine the um, tenure of the uh, Justice and Development Party in government. Uh, so, for example, in 2007, uh, we have a presidential election crisis. Uh, uh, soon after, we have, uh, at that time, actually, we have 
and military ultimatum. Uh, a year later, a year and a half later, the Supreme Court is uh, 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 attempting to close down the Justice and Development Party uh, 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 because of allegedly uh, uh, non-constitutional, anti-constitutional actions and so on. And uh, in 2013, eventually, we have the outbreak of the Gezil protests that have really rattled uh, the Turkish government uh, and uh, uh, have uh, uh, collectively all these events have uh, generated what I call in another uh, uh, work I have uh, uh, produced. Um, uh, they, they cause what we could call in some ways uh, a regime insecurity and angst in some ways. I think that's very important in terms of uh, uh, the, the uh, Justice and Development Party, especially its leadership, reconsidering its options within the domestic and international arena. Uh, in the domestic arena, I would say that uh, the government at that time um, abandoned its uh, commitment to um, the uh, process of democratization of the country. So we have, uh, in many ways, an end to a process of democratization that was linked to European Union accession. And at the same time, uh, it uh, uh, gives an end to the peace process that had been unfolding uh, uh, between the government and the Kurdish movement in, in the country. Uh, this is roughly the time when uh, also the, uh, um, I would say, mass mobilization experiment, uh, the, the, the Arab Spring in some ways, uh, uh, starts being uh, in, in many ways uh, um, uh, uh, becomes uh, under, uh, I lost it. Um, the Arab Spring uh, uh, encounters obstacles uh, in uh, many countries that, uh, like Egypt, that uh, uh, formed the I would say main pillar of uh, Turkey's regional politics at the time. Uh, we can see that uh, a return of the ancien regime minus Mubarak uh, uh, eventually takes place. Tunisia more slowly uh, sees the, the aspiration of the Arab Spring frustrated. And uh, we can see, of course, in Syria, uh, the uprisings of the people, the protests becoming uprisings and eventually a civil war and a proxy war. And therefore, uh, I think the, the Turkish uh, leadership uh, realizes that uh, 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 there is a threat, both regionally uh, to its blueprint of regional change, but also uh, there is an example of how uh, Islamism uh, might uh, be in some ways curtailed and suppressed in, uh, in the region. And therefore, uh, uh, Turkey starts becoming more active uh, in uh, the international uh, uh, arena and especially the regional arena uh, with emphasis on uh, uh, trying to contain the um, uh, forces that uh, have frustrated the Arab Spring uh, uh, and especially the ascendance of the Muslim Brotherhood in positions of control within the Arab Spring. It is roughly at this time that we can see that Turkey assume, uh, assumes a more aggressive or assertive uh, or both uh, uh, posture within the region. And we can see that uh, uh, it starts getting involved in a number of uh, 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 conflicts. 
Uh, in Syria, it pursues regime change and eventually, uh, as I will say in a minute, uh, engages even more deeply. In, uh, in Somalia, there was already uh, a 2010 an attempt to, uh, uh, of Turkey to uh, assume a leading role in uh, uh, the process of stabilizing the state. And in Libya, a little later, uh, we can see that Turkey uh, engages in, in the conflict. Uh, I would like to, uh, at this uh, moment, also say that uh, there is another factor that is uh, quite uh, interesting in Turkey's engagement in uh, the region, but also further uh, afield in some ways, uh, which uh, I, uh, uh, I call geohistory. Uh, I borrowed this term from uh, geology, but uh, never mind. I, I hope you can bear with me at this moment. So geohistory is, uh, uh, in my book, uh, a kind of uh, assemblage of memories uh, constructed quite frequently of uh, Turkey's meaningful past and its projection to the future in some ways. It's, and it's uh, 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 the, the projection of these history's memories into the geopolitics of Turkey. I mean, I would argue that uh, the most obvious original uh, area that uh, has uh, appeared to be relevant to Turkey uh, is the post-Ottoman kind of uh, 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 region, I would call, I would say, which is in red in the uh, slide behind me. Uh, at the same time, uh, a second layer is the outlying uh, uh, parts of the Ottoman space and uh, 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 which happen to be Muslim majority countries at the moment. And these include the Horn of Africa, at least several countries of the Horn of Africa, and several countries of the Sahel further to the west. I, uh, Soli Ozel, an eminent, I would say, commentator, has been arguing that uh, Turkey at that time has shifted towards an ideological foreign policy. I would uh, like to use this concept, but stretch it a bit and uh, uh, in some ways question it. I would argue that, uh, yes, uh, Turkey has uh, essentially always felt more at home, the leaderships uh, uh, dealing with, uh, with countries and populations where uh, there was some affinity that uh, could allow them, first of all, to uh, see themselves as legitimate actors in, in and at the same time, uh, to legitimize the, the engagement of the country in the domestic, uh, uh, towards the domestic audience that they had. Uh, so in many ways, I would say that this kind of uh, uh, geohistories have uh, formed, uh, have in some ways circumscribed the geopolitical imagination of the Turkish leadership. And on the other hand, have been utilized as tools uh, for legitimizing and uh, pursuing their uh, uh, foreign policy. Uh, having said that, very quickly, I will mention that uh, there are two uh, other important elements. Another, another narrative that Turkey has used quite often, especially vis-a-vis -vis Africa, has been uh, the fact that it lacks a colonial baggage, at least the way that uh, uh, it describes itself, it has never been a colonial power. Uh, former Ottoman uh, provinces, for example, might uh, 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 the populations there might have a different view. But uh, further south, uh, uh, this this is something that, uh, uh, compared to France, for example, Turkey seems to be a much more uh, honest broker and uh, and uh, partner. Uh, 
Uh, and the other important element I would uh, like to emphasize is that Turkey, uh, a corollary to this is that Turkey uh, quite often presents itself as someone who doesn't bring with it conditionality as the European Union or other Western uh, development and peace uh, building uh, partners. Um, so now I, uh, this is the meat and potatoes of this presentation, if I can say that, and I will try to uh, say, uh, to go through it very quickly and uh, uh, reach the conclusions uh, that I have prepared. So Turkey uh, uh, role uh, from early on, I would say, has been to maximize its regional influence. What has changed, however, since I would say 2010, roughly, is that uh, Turkey has uh, uh, perceived this regional influence in different terms, and also the means of uh, uh, exerting this influence uh, also differently. Um, what has been a constant has been uh, the fact that uh, Turkey has developed uh, not the liberal peace theory, I would say, but the developmental peace theory. It always packaged development and peace building together. Uh, a second uh, runner-up in this package is uh, trade. Turkey has uh, systematically defined itself as a trading nation. And more recently, especially I would say uh, since uh, uh, six, seven years ago, we can see that Turkey has been uh, reverting to the notion of hard power as a means of exercising foreign policy. Uh, and therefore, if we look at what this means for peace, uh, peace uh, in, 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 in uh, this context is peace contain is uh, sorry conflict containment or military prevalence. Um, we uh, can see also that uh, this kind of approach has uh, enmeshed Turkey in a, a complex web of regional antagonisms. Uh, so, for example, Courtney talked about Qatar's uh, peace uh, building kind of engagement and uh, uh, efforts. Uh, Ankara has, uh, in many ways, forged an alliance with uh, Qatar, not, uh, uh, I would call it a la carte alliance in some ways, because it's not a holistic alliance. Uh, and uh, uh, this has been prompted primarily by the uh, competition between uh, Turkey on the one hand and the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia in the first instance on the other, uh, as a, a, a countries that had different visions of the future of the region. So whereas Turkey has been pushing towards a, a Muslim Brotherhood presided uh, the transition in the region, uh, we can see that uh, the, especially the United Arab Emirates have been uh, opting for, if we can put brackets here, a nationalist kind of uh, uh, um, approach to uh, politics in the region. Uh, uh, one that, uh, uh, had marginalized to some extent um, uh, Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Sunnis, and so on as a main component. Uh, as this happens, Turkish pol policy and engagement in the region becomes increasingly confrontational and interventionist. Uh, it uh, 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 engages not only in, uh, I would say, discursive rivalries, but also it uh, transfers in some ways the conflicts that it has with its uh, uh, major opponents in the region, the Emirates primarily, uh, but also Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and France, uh, interestingly, to uh, uh, the field. So every intervention 
of these countries in some ways involves a uh, what we call a security dilemma for the uh, opponent, uh, a, a source of insecurity. This means that uh, Turkey's engagement in the region quite often is uh, unilateral. It's not multilateral as it used to be when it was participating as part of uh, uh, multilateral organizations in peacekeeping and limited peacebuilding operations. Therefore, uh, Turkey uh, becomes much more assertive and much more reliant, reliant on its own uh, um, I would say resources, and to some extent uh, to the resources of its partner Qatar when uh, they, uh, uh, their interests are aligned. Another important point that I would like to, to mention, and this is the last one in many ways, is that Turkey has managed to navigate in these times uh, through a systemic, uh, the major systemic realignments, both globally but also regionally. As a, a uh, uh, non-liberal, I would say, uh, powers emerge in the region, including Russia, uh, whose presence in Syria, of course, marked its uh, role as a reg regional actor, but also China. Turkey has uh, uh, become bolder uh, and at the same time has managed to engage in uh, uh, a very peculiar competition with these uh, powers. Uh, you may remember, for example, the fact that the Turkish Air Force downed a Russian MiG aircraft over Syria or allegedly over Turkish uh, airspace, in Turkish airspace. The fact that uh, uh, such a, an act has not really uh, prompted a breakdown in the communication and the cooperation between Turkey and uh, um, uh, Russia is not a paradox. I would argue, as I will show you, in this map that concludes this presentation. In many ways, Turkey has uh, managed to uh, engage in a kind of uh, intricate choreography with uh, one of the major, I would say, illiberal powers in the region, uh, whereby whereas it is a competitor, they are competitors in Libya, for example, they have been competitors in Syria as they've been competitors with Iran in the same country. Uh, we can see that uh, uh, Russia tolerates and accommodates Turkish ambitions in, in the regions as long as they are not uh, um, excessively, excessively detrimental to its own interests. And this is largely because uh, Turkey has uh, acquired political capital by its trans the transformation of its dissidents within the Euro-Atlantic institutions into uh, uh, a, an asset for uh, Russia and its presence in the Middle East. Uh, so, uh, in many ways, I would like to emphasize this, that as long as this, uh, this kind of distance can be converted into political capital, we may see an assertive Turkey, although uh, recent uh, uh, events like the Ukrainian uh, conflict, the Iran uh, deal back being on the table and the rapprochement between Israel and the Gulf countries, might uh, uh, dent a little bit the ambition and boldness of Turkey. Thank you very much for uh, listening. Well, thank you uh, to both our speakers for those uh, insightful and thought-provoking presentations. Um, I hope you, your thoughts have indeed uh, been provoked and that you have some questions. I have a few myself, but I... Uh, um, obviously defer to others in the room and um, in the uh, on Zoom. Uh, 
who had questions, but the gentleman here. Thank you. My name is Mohamed um, Al-Mazan. I'm a PhD student at the University of London. Uh, thank you, Spurs, for quoting me for your presentation. My question um, probably could be directed to both of you. Uh, we know that Turkey has military intervention of different degrees from Syria, Libya, and Somalia. Um, how do you see these military interventions? Do they contribute to the peace building? Do they contribute to finishing conflicts earlier than they should? Or do you see them somehow um, making these conflict, conflict, conflicts uh, stay longer than they should? Thank you. Let's, let's take a, a, a few more questions from the room. Uh, Michael, please. Uh, Michael Mason, the Lee Center. Um, I also have a question. I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, getting through those three papers in, in such an efficient manner and in a very sort of uh, uh, concise way. Uh, and I also had a question which I think applies to all three papers, which is um, these recommendations in the papers are sort of uh, moving towards some kind of encouragement of a, a more liberal peacekeeping kind of framework. And looking at uh, uh, in, in both papers, for example, examples with the, with the Qatar, uh, the, the partnership court you mentioned with the UN Political Department peacekeeping, and and Spiros, you talk about the, this sort of mixed liberal, illiberal, sort of Turkish sort of uh, uh, peacekeeping or or, or sort of uh, um, peace building kind of uh, outlook. But in, in both cases, you're, you're suggesting things where there are going to be uh, constraints or challenges, um, talking about involving civil society, appealing to democratization, for example. And in both cases, it seems to be that we're dealing with very sort of uh, personalized sort of uh, 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 peace building, very sort of transactional rather than principled uh, peace building. So the question is about the kind of limits, opportunities of going to what we might call a more liberal peacekeeping paradigm. Are we talking about necessarily human rights or human security as opposed to state security, for example? And, and just with both of you, where you might see perhaps some, maybe some short-term um, possibilities there, because it can't be anything which necessarily sort of starts to, 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 to challenge the sort of the ideology within these states and their kind of government system. Thank you. Thank you both. My name is Rathra Tassi. I'm with SRM, a risk consultancy. My question is, um, I think we all see a sort of convergence between Saudi and Turkey right now, and we can assume that there would be something that follows with the UAE and for them with Qatar. Do you think there's any space or a, a positive hope for a liberal peace building if these forces are converging and agreeing with each other? Okay, let's um, ask our speakers to address those questions. Courtney, would you like to uh, have a go first? I was hoping Spiros would take these because they're good. <laughs> <laughs> His turn will come. No, it's, it's fine. No, I mean, I, I really like these questions. It's, it's, they're, they're tough. And I mean, I really like the, the phrase transactional peace building because I do think that in some ways this is, is what ends up happening, especially when, when kind of checkbook diplomacy uh, comes into play. In terms of how to change that, I mean, that's a bit more difficult. I think one, one way to do this is to kind of increase capacity domestically for um, within kind of diplomatic core 
um, for peacemaking and peacebuilding best practices, things like that, institutionalization, that's one way to do this. I mean, in terms of a broader prioritization, for instance, of, of human rights um, above like protection of, of state secure state assets um, above all, I think that's that's a bit more difficult. Um, and, and I don't know how that kind of shift would happen. I think I'm I'm also quite cynical uh, in terms of thinking that that states will are realist actors and will do what you know what is in their best interests um, strategically. And so that's why you know human rights will go on and off the the agenda. Peacemaking will go on and off the agenda. Oftentimes, um, I do think that that maybe more activity multilateralism I think would be really helpful. I think working under an umbrella, for instance, of the UN. Um, would be useful uh, in terms of, of helping these states to work together towards longer term solutions. And I think in particular, things like, like dialogues, um, like um, strategic dialogues would be really helpful to get at main drivers of conflict, as well as to find you know, ways for like national reconciliation councils to move forward in a, in a bit of a more long-termist and more sustainable way. And I see the the UN, like the international community at large, probably playing a, um, possibly playing a more productive role in this than individual states, just because there are suspicions of individual states, um, and, and there's also competition when it's when it's bilateral. Whereas that kind of disappears on multilateralism. That said, there's no way to compel states to do what they don't want to do or they don't believe is in their interests. Um, that's not really a, a a satisfying answer, um, but but hopefully Spiros has has um, one that's a, a bit maybe more optimistic or or more useful. Before we go on, one thing um, that you know, as someone who was on the um, in the policy making world, um, the thing that struck me most forcibly uh, in your uh, papers, Courtney, was this this question of lack of institutional capacity. Um, and I'm wondering, and this is also a question for uh, Spiros perhaps, in your work, did you detect any uh, appetite on the part of UAE, Qatar or Turkey for help from third parties, whether those third parties are the UN, whether they're um, European countries or North American countries with a lot of experience in uh, long-term development work, or would that sort of um, suggestion be um, anathema to the uh, the countries that you've been looking at? It's a good question. I mean, I I think there's limited appetite to, for it. I do think there's more focus now on building up local capacity locally. That said, I mean, there are all kinds of exchanges um, with different, U I know of ones with UK institutions in particular, um, between members of the diplomatic corps from Qatar, for instance. So there are things happening. There is some, some idea of an appetite. I think for Qatar in particular, after um, the Arab Spring and after Qatar was, was seen to be less an, a neutral partner and, and more one that was acting ideologically, which is not something that I believe it was doing, which we can get into later. But in any case, because that, that was the perception, I think that the, that it was kind of a, it led to more introspection and more reform in terms of trying to professionalize um, and institutionalize uh, activities within the diplomatic corps and, and specifically within foreign policy. 
the ones that I know about are are kind of within the country, but definitely in in cooperation with with other actors. I don't think that there's um, I don't think there's opposition to to working with with others and learning from others. I I've never gotten that sense. I think there's a you know obviously no one wants to be told what to do by outsiders, but I think that you know in terms of knowledge exchanges, I think that there is there is some appetite for that. I think again after the Arab Spring. Um, there has been more appetite. I'd say even even maybe on the Emirati side as well. But I I've been speaking to people on the Qatari side a bit more more recently. So um, I'll leave it there. Okay, thank you. Um, I was up on this point actually. I I think that Turkey has a double problem. It has a and I will say it has a, a low institutionalization in terms of. This more, uh, I would say, uh, recent engagement in peacemaking, peace building, but especially developmental peace, um, uh, because it has not had experience in the past. At the same time, I think that, uh, of course, uh, um, uh, Gulf countries also have personalistic uh, leaderships in many ways, but I think that uh, the personalistic character of the leadership of leadership in Turkey at the moment is uh, um, uh, not very similar. Turkey is in a constant state of crisis, reproducing crisis itself in many ways, and therefore there is no space, I think, for any alternative voice, not any of them, but there is not a lot of space for alternative voices in some ways to uh, uh, suggest uh, ways of uh, uh, developing an institutional infrastructure and uh, 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 develop capacity to deal with the very complex problems that Turkey is facing. Uh, in my uh, presentation, I also had a slide in which I show how uh, Turkey's involvement in northern Syria resembles very much uh, its involvement uh, post-1974 uh, in Cyprus, northern Cyprus. The state building uh, know-how that Turkey has in some ways it's a copy of the 1974 uh, blueprint in, in many ways. So it doesn't have the capacity at this moment to, um, it doesn't have the staff, it doesn't have, uh, the, the staff don't have the kind of uh, boldness to uh, meet the challenges of today in some way. Uh, this brings me to uh, the issue of uh, multilateral, multilateralism that uh, Courtney uh, brought up. I think that, uh, and in my uh, recommendations, I argue that uh, involving Turkey in multilateral uh, engagements uh, in uh, conflict situations and uh, development also processes uh, is very important because I think that uh, what accentuates Turkey's uh, confrontational uh, approach is the fact that uh, it uh, engages as a lone actor in the region. And this loneliness, in some ways, uh, uh, creates a vicious circle of uh, insecurity and uh, the need to uh, minimize this insecurity by producing insecurity for others, in some ways. Um, liberal peace, I, I, I must be frank, I am not an adherent of the uh, theory of liberal peace in the sense that I think it has not existed really even uh, within the European Union foreign policy and so on. We have an approximation or a wish list that we call liberal peace. So I do not think that uh, Turkey as well as Qatar and the Emirates should 
essentially aspire to becoming uh, actors that promote liberal peace, but uh, they should become actors that are not unaccountable and therefore are uh, uh, introduced into multilateral contexts of engaging with regional problems. I think that's very important as a step. I cannot imagine what can happen after this. Uh, I uh, and regarding the uh, interventions of Turkey, uh, they're very different. Somalia and Syria and Libya are very different. Uh, Syria, the discourse has always been securitized, extremely securitized, and uh, the motives are very different from those in Somalia, which uh, started as a showcasing attempt uh, of Turkey's new capabilities. Um, we have seen, and that's also common in, uh, with Libya, that uh, Turkey's involvement, especially its technical aid, uh, has very fragmenting, a very fragmented impact. In what sense? For example, uh, the technology provided to the Somalian army is uh, not compatible with the technology that the Somalian army has, communications uh, uh, and other uh, infrastructure. Uh, the command structure is also not uh, unified. So units that have been trained by Turkey are operating under a separate command, uh, which also makes sense in sense of, in the sense of their uh, in terms of their different equipment, different uh, uh, ethos, and so on. Uh, and these units have also been involved in uh, uh, a conflict within Somalia with other parts of the national army, and have been propping a particular part of the Somalian elite, President Farmajo and his uh, entourage in many ways, uh, even when his term was uh, approaching its end. Uh, in Libya, we can see the same. We can see that uh, uh, Turkey's uh, uh, decision to remain in Libya after the formation of a government of uh, national unity in many ways has been uh, maintaining fissures within the army and within even the political elite, uh, or at least obstacles to unification. And I think that is very significant. Uh, I can go on and talk about uh, uh, other uh, uh, involvements, but I think these are the, the most important. And uh, I would argue that uh, Turkey has not given a thought uh, as to how to integrate, but uh, primarily as how to influence. And this is a very dangerous kind of path for stabilization. Well, um, people on Zoom, either um, everyone is very shy or I've got a technical problem because I haven't got any questions in the uh, Q&A box. But meanwhile, I'm happy to take some questions from here in the uh, room. Gentlemen, there, please. Um, thank you for the presentation. My name is Yael Hamid. Work at the Syrian Civil Society Organization called SLDP. Um, the, the two papers kind of start before the uh, war in Ukraine or the recent uh, engagement in Ukraine. How do you read the engagement of the Gulf countries and Turkey in the recent crisis for both uh, presentations? Yes, and thank you for your presentation. My name is David Zip. I'm a PhD student from the University of Trento in Italy. I have a question um, regarding disengagement and making peace. Isn't there also the risk that local conflicts can then become internationalized, as we, for example, saw in Yemen, where then Saudi Arabia and Iran got involved to push the agendas of both their 
proxies and making the conflict worse, that especially with Turkey getting involved in conflicts in Somalia, dragging in further powers, which do not want a too powerful Turkey, for example, or the same with the EVE or Qatar. Thank you. Is there another question in, in the room here? Yes. Uh, okay. Anyone over here? Thank you. When we talk about bees, uh, making bees in the Middle East, we, we have covered um, uh, Turkey and the Gulf states, uh, and also uh, one of these reports uh, talks about a few organizations, uh, the Arab League, uh, the GCC, Islamic cooperation. Uh, an important question comes to mind, what is the role of Iran into either making bees or not making bees? Thank you. Okay. Uh, I think both our speakers should have a go at those uh, questions. Courtney, can I come to you again first? Sure. Um, so on the, the question of Ukraine, um, I mean, I, I think I remember initially that everyone was kind of waiting for some type of big statements to come out of the Gulf. Initially, I, I had heard whispers that Qatar was maybe going to try to mediate the conflict. Um, what we've seen, I think, as the conflict has go, gone on is that um, Qatar has increasingly, Qatar and Kuwait have taken positions that align more closely with the Ukrainian position. So um, just a few weeks ago, I was in, in Qatar for the Doha Forum and President Zelensky made kind of a surprise appearance over Zoom um, and, and really quite compellingly tried to, to, to shift, I think, opinions of, of some people in, in the Gulf perhaps who don't want to get involved in the conflict, basically to, to, to say that, for instance, Muslim populations are, are under attack. I mean, just and also making comparisons to Syria, trying to draw more interest, I think, in in the Gulf, I'd say in particular, in what's happening in Ukraine. Um, I think when it comes to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, where their position has been highlighted primarily is, is with the, the oil market, right? So there has been a lot of pressure um, since the UAE and Saudi Arabia have enough capacity to, to basically add more um, oil onto into the market um, to compensate for Russian oil being under sanction and, and basically not being on the market anymore. And what we've seen is that they're they're not going to to do that essentially. And also that OPEC has basically made uh, small increases in oil um, output, but not not the amount that really kind of the Biden administration in particular was looking for. Um, and a lot has been made for this uh, about this decision in the U.S. media, especially about. Does this mean that, for instance, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are turning away from their relationship with the U.S. and are, are looking elsewhere for alliances, don't really care as much about this relationship with the U.S. because they feel that the, the Biden administration is not um, a reliable ally? So I think, I mean, obviously all of this is still kind of shifting, um, but I, I think we see Kuwait and Qatar moving more towards the Ukrainian space. Um, Bahrain and Oman have been pretty low profile. And then Saudi Arabia and the UAE trying to preserve, preserve the, the relationship we, they have with, with Russia, which, you know, especially on the, the energy front. Um, but I, I still, I, I guess we'll see kind of what happens moving forward. But again, what, what's been made of this in the US is basically looking at how independent how independently the Emiratis and, and Saudis are making their foreign policy when in the past, in the States, there would have been a presumption that they would basically follow um, the US line. So again, this idea that these are independent actors and, and will remain independent actors. Um, on the, the point about Iran, I mean, 
yeah, I only, only, uh, I, it's above my pay grade to know kind of what, what Iran wants to happen and, and will do. I mean, I think certainly having Iran as a member of the OIC is, is one thing that's cited as causing this kind of rivalry between Saudi Arabia and, and Iran. It basically provides, arguably provides a, a venue for that rivalry. On the other hand, um, other people have, have speculated that because the Arab League, um, you know, by virtue of it being the Arab League, um, does not include Turkey and does not include Iran, it actually limits its ability to act as a regional body because you're leaving out two very important actors in the region. Um, and, and so, I mean, I can see it both ways. I mean, do you, do you try to include Iran and, and try to get them more involved in, in regional action in the Middle East? Or is that only going to, to lead to suspicion and to greater competition in particular um, with Saudi Arabia? And I think a lot will depend on what happens um, with the JCPOA, if a deal can be reached and then, you know, Iran can be welcomed, possibly welcomed back into into the international community, and then also um, what happens with Yemen, um, because you know Saudi Arabia has has been experiencing attacks from Yemen. So, I think those seeing what happens on those two fronts will will indicate kind of what Iran's intentions are moving forward, or or what will, if not their intentions, what will uh, color their actions moving forward. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think it is kind of, and not just because I don't know the answer, but I do think it is a period when, when there are a lot of moving parts happening and a lot of moving parts. So we're not, it's really difficult to say with any certainty um, you know, what, what they'll do. And I think it will depend on what happens in the, in the next few weeks and months. Okay, thank you. Spiros, Ukraine is Turkey's big break as a peacemaking nation, isn't it? Well, uh, Turkey worked hard to ensure that it's, uh, it has a position at the table, sort of, in any case. I think that uh, um, uh, the uh, Russian invasion in Ukraine uh, could have worked uh, in, in many ways uh, uh, productively for Turkey in the sense, for the Turkish government, in the sense that it could have uh, um, opened up opportunities for Turkey to um, engage regionally without being checked continuously by Western powers uh, um, who would be focusing primarily on another crisis. Uh, I think the good relationship that, uh, uh, and I'm talking also about economics, uh, that Turkey has with Ukraine, as well as with Russia, of course, has uh, uh, created a serious dilemma for the Turkish government and uh, forced it to, um, uh, I, I think it was, uh, uh, there was a characterization of Turkey at some point as the um, uh, adept uh, neutral country in many ways uh, in the Second World War, for example. I think Turkey is trying to play a similar role in the sense of uh, leaving its airspace open for uh, Russian flights, not participating fully in sanctions, actually uh, only token participation I've seen so far. And at the same time, uh, trying to uh, bring Ukraine and Russia at the table since Antalya, the Antalya Forum, it has been trying to do that. Uh, I think this may have also um, 
rekindled some fears of uh, the former Soviet Union and of course of Russia as a, a power that has uh, been um, uh, quite often inimical towards uh, Turkey or the Ottoman Empire and uh, has uh, um, the insecurity of this has uh, um, brought uh, to the foreground uh, may just may explain some of the actions of Turkey at the moment. Uh, it's uh, taming its rhetoric, its uh, attempt to be more constructive uh, towards the Euro-Atlantic uh, uh, alliances and so on, uh, and at the same time trying to maintain a, a safe distance, but uh, also proximity with Russia. Uh, so I think, uh, as, as Courtney said as well, for Turkey too, this is a, a, a time of uh, uh, uncertainty and change. Uh, uh, perhaps we will see that uh, what I just talked about uh, uh, will become redundant in terms of uh, its descriptive capacity in the next uh, couple, uh, in the next couple of years, depending on how Turkey uh, uh, eventually decides to engage in this in this process. But uh, at the moment, I see moderation and caution. Um, with regards uh, to the engagement of uh, Turkey and I suppose other regional powers uh, in the region and their conflict production capacity, I think that is true. And uh, actually, uh, what I said earlier is that uh, the antagonism between the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia on the one hand, Turkey and Qatar on the other, uh, has been transplanted in different territories. So when uh, uh, the United Arab Emirates set up a base in Djibouti, they do it uh, uh, because Turkey has already a training base in, in Mogadishu. And uh, uh, in Sudan, where the Russians are extremely active, of course, the United Arab Emirates and Turkey are trying to uh, at least have a second place um, uh, and they compete. Uh, in some countries, this, especially the most unstable countries, this uh, uh, can be translated into local conflicts in many ways. And this is the danger of the current regional alignments and how they, they tend to uh, spill over. Very quickly about Iran, because I have been uh, working on Iran, I've been writing something about uh, 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 the coherence of the state in Iran. Uh, I think as most states, uh, uh, the Iranian state is uh, not monolithic. It is, uh, it is uh, uh, a constellation, I would say, of uh, different forces that have different interests, but uh, uh, which are united in the determination to maintain some sort of semblance of continuity of the Iranian, the Islamic Republic. But uh, so we can see that there are forces that uh, uh, are extremely well served by the isolation of Iran and its pariah state. Uh, for example, the SEPA forces uh, uh, have been uh, uh, not only active in terms of uh, as state security forces, but also as economic forces. Uh, they have uh, expanded uh, uh, their holdings uh, uh, in the economy. And this was made possible because there is no other external investment in Iran at the moment. The isolation has allowed uh, internal actors like in Russia with the oligarchs in some ways to, uh, uh, um, I would say, uh, take huge chunks of the economy under their own kind of uh, purview. Um, 
So I would argue that there are forces in Iran that uh, would uh, uh, favor a more uh, confrontational approach within the region. And there are forces in Iran that uh, 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 are extremely invested in uh, uh, making the deal uh, uh, happen, essentially. And therefore, um, I would not uh, uh, be able to answer with certainty uh, what Iran's interests are, because I don't think there is a singular set of interests, but multiple sets of interests. Thank you. Well, I, I still have no questions from the people on Zoom, and all I would say is don't miss this opportunity to uh, ask questions of these two excellent speakers. Um, are there any more questions in the room? Uh, I have a couple of questions myself. One is, um, I'm sorry, I have a question. Um, this is for Courtney. Um, taking this notion of international activism as a form to rebrand the country, what are your thoughts on the upcoming World Cup hosted by Gatter? Is this indeed a way of implementing Gattery rebranding? It's, it's not directly on the international aid, but never mind, it's very topical and uh, we all love footy, don't we? <laughs> well, I don't, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think this is definitely part of a broader strategy on behalf of Qatar to to be more seen on the on the world stage, or as every kind of third article about Qatar calls it, punching above its weight. Um, and I remember Qatar won the the World Cup bid back in twenty is twenty ten um, because I remember I was there when it happened, and this was under the leadership of Hamid bin Khalifa Al Thani, the previous Emir, under whose leadership we saw Qatar's standing internationally really changed. I mean, uh, he was the one under whom Al Jazeera was established. I mean, a lot of, you know, putting Qatar on, on the scene internationally was done under, under his leadership, at least was started then. Um, so I think this is part of, of, of kind of sports diplomacy and there's um, a whole, whole bunch of literature coming out about, you know, the ways in which sports diplomacy matters and will continue to matter. Um, it, it's also, you know, huge economic benefit to to Qatar and and it's also you know it's the first time that the World Cup's being hosted in the Middle East so the fact that Qatar is is the one hosting it is is something in terms of you know in terms of how it's branding it also as you know kind of for for the Arab world in general not just um not just for the Qataris and and one thing that I've I've heard in you know in recent times is that also you know, from from Qatari authorities, that the the international spotlight being on Qatar and in particular on international labor um, violations in Qatar has led to its uh, reform, for instance, of the kafala system. So they've actually said that you know, in fact, this negative international attention that we ended up receiving at the start, you know, after receiving the the World Cup, um, has led to to domestic political reform. So there is this. I, idea that you know maybe maybe there is something to to you know, once a spotlight is put on a country then there there is more pressure for um for change to happen um and yeah and, and that's kind of what what I've heard from from cultures now but yeah I mean it, and also I guess part of the the risk is is if it goes terribly which I I hope it does not um you know that's potentially an embarrassment but I think that that the cultures have invested quite a bit. Um, you know, reputation-wise, financially, in hosting 
uh, first the Asian Games uh, and then and now the World Cup and seeing and being seen as a place where venues, international venues, can be held. People don't need to be worried about you know that they're not going to be allowed to to do things that they want to do. And it is marketing marketing Qatar as a destination in a way that it it hasn't been seen in the past. Okay, thank you, uh, Courtney, and thank you to uh, Florencia Urbani for that uh, question. Um, I've got a question on uh, Gatar um, and how we should classify Gatar's um, activities um, in Gaza, the financing of um, poverty reduction programs and so on. Is it peacemaking? Is it peace building? Is it humanitarian action? How, how would you describe it? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think depending on who you ask, it would it could be described as any any number of of those. I mean, I think the way that the Qatari government tends to to answer that question is to say that this has to do primarily with humanitarian assistance, um, and not necessarily as a part of a broader peace building platform. But I, I think you know it could be seen potentially as doing that moving forward. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this is also part of you know, the state building in a sense, because the, the Gulf states have been criticized quite a bit historically for not doing enough to, to help the Palestinian cause. And so I think that this is, you know, an effort on behalf of the Qataris also um, to, to show that they are doing something, that they are trying to become involved and trying to, to help Palestinians on the ground. So in that, in terms of the messaging, I think that's the, the primary messaging that you get rather than it being seen as, as kind of um, humanitarian versus um, part of a, a broader peacemaking um, effort, I suppose. Thank you both for the talks. They're very insightful. I'm looking forward to reading the papers at length. Um, but I have a question for you. Can you tell us who you are, please? Uh, yes, my name is Iman. I'm a master's student here at LSE in development management. Uh, I'm Syrian, but I lived in Dubai for most of my life. And uh, living in Dubai, I, um, especially during the time where the UAE normalized their relationship with Israel. Um, that was a big uh, change, especially as someone living there and a lot of people in the community were, um, and members of civil society were, uh, found this to be an unprecedented move. So I wanted to know, Courtney, from your perspective and your studies um, through your conceptual framework, how you characterize that move and whether it had anything to do with their relationship with Qatar or um, as a way to you know, uh, push their status in the region. Thank you. Yeah, another another good question. I didn't really get into the Abraham Accords too much, really, in the in the paper, just because I didn't see it as directly related to peacemaking, peace building. And of course, the the argument against these peace treaties is how can you normalize relations when the the situation, the Palestinian situation, hasn't been resolved? And that's kind of been the line that that the Qataris have taken, the Kuwaitis have taken, that, that basically there's no place for normalization until things change you know, within Israel-Palestine. Um, I mean, so I haven't, I, I think in terms of why, why they move forward with the deal, I think, I think it's part of this, it, it's kind of a transactional foreign policy move in, in a sense. I mean, also I think that with the Emirates, more so than other Gulf states, everyone kind of knew that there was this at least economic relationship between the two states. So it was kind of bringing out in the open what had already been happening um, and publicizing it quite quite a lot. Um, 
And I, I don't know, I mean, in terms of, I, I guess the way that it was, the way that it was framed, I think had to do with the, you know, economic benefit also with, you know, shared strategic interests um, with being able to work with the Israelis more closely. And then in that way have leverage when it comes to the Palestinian situation. I think also part of it had to do with the Emirati relationship with uh, Jared Kushner, with the Trump administration. Um, and, you know, in, in with, when you look at other states that signed um, onto the Abraham Accords, they all kind of got something out of the, I mean, it was, it was kind of, you know, first there was kind of a quid pro quo when it came to Sudan, when it came to Morocco, when it came to the UAE, I don't, it was, I, I suppose the, what they gained materially was more, you know, access to Israeli markets, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't know also if it's seen as in this broader framework, which I think the Emiratis are promoting of, of what they like to call moderate Islam. Um, and I think it's, it's this move towards secularism and perhaps in that I in that there's less support for the Palestinian cause I'm not entirely I'm not entirely sure to be honest um but but I think I think that it can be seen especially in in the I mean at the time through the relationship with the Trump administration as well as I mean of course there was the breakdown with the relationship of Qatar during that time um so again branding in a in a different way from Qatar um, and being more kind of trying to be seen as, as more pragmatic, uh, moderate, more willing to engage and less ideological than, than other states in the region. I think that's, that's how I would view it. Okay, we're approaching the end of our time. Uh, are there, I don't have any other questions on Zoom, but please, why not? Thank you again. Um, my question is to Spears. You refer to the term uh, geohistory. Uh, in reference to um, Turkish increasing influence in the Middle East, mostly in part of the world when it were when it were part of that empire, have you considered the term a new Ottomanism? And do you think this um, term um, could encapsulate um, what has been changing, especially in reference to historical sites? As we know, two two years ago, Turkey has been. Uh, in contact with Sudanese government regarding Sawakin, for instance, and another materialistic uh, encapsulation could be the establishment of military training center in Doha. Uh, how do you see the use of the term a new Ottomanism in a state of a geohistory? Thank you. I use the term new Ottomanism, I, although I try to avoid it. Um, I think that, uh, yes, we can, we can describe some of the uh, of what is happening in Turkey in terms of uh, the transformation of its geopolitical imagination, and that was happening already since the late 1980s, I would say. Uh, we can see a neo-Ottomanism, but uh, uh, when we see that, we cannot uh, take into account other notions of kinship and uh, strategic depth, as uh, uh, Daoudoglu would have said, like uh, the Turkic states of uh, 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 Central Asia, for example. Uh, I think, I, I think yes, there is an element of neo-Ottomanism, but also there is an element of emphasis on Islam even without Ottomanism in it. So the Sahel, there have been very, very tenuous kinds of uh, uh, expressions um, of uh, uh, links between the Ottoman Empire and uh, the countries of the Sahel because of the old explorer that had uh, ventured uh, south of the Sahara, but the fact is that uh, these are extremely uh, weak, I would say, 
um, affirmations of some sort of cultural interaction and kinship and so on. Uh, uh, we can see more in the case of the Horn of Africa and Qatar as well, uh, that uh, um, a lot of uh, uh, people, even diplomats I talk to, consider this as uh, the revitalization of an Ottoman space. And uh, for many in Turkey, this is, uh, uh, you know, the mini Eurasianism in some ways. It is uh, uh, the, the need to create strategic depth in the former um, empire. Uh, and uh, uh, but beyond the ideology, I think there is also, as I said, an instrumentalization of religion, of history, and uh, of uh, other forms of kinship, like the Turkic-speaking peoples, that have been used by governments. In so, um, I wouldn't really uh, dwell very much on the notion of neo-Ottomanism. It is a current. Some people believe in it, but I believe that. Uh, uh, it just makes uh, more legitimate Turkish involvement in specific regions and less legitimate Turkish involvement in other regions. Uh, but uh, what underlies the involvement is much more pragmatic and uh, uh, high power kinds of organs of power. It's not a good answer, but uh, I know. So. Well, our, our time is up. Um, I want to thank our two speakers very much for uh, their excellent presentations and their uh, excellent engagement with some very good questions. Thank you everyone who, who participated. Um, and I want to thank uh, Kendall for helping me with uh, <laughs> technical hitches, which are probably due to uh, IT illiteracy on my part, but anyway. We had a good session. Thank you very much, everyone. Let's give our speakers a